Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Donald Trump, the first former U.S. president to be indicted, pleaded not guilty to 34 criminal counts in the Manhattan District Attorney's case against him amid an intense national debate over the prosecution. At a press conference, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg said the office has brought these kinds of cases before. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. The 34 counts are ordinarily misdemeanors under New York law, but are charged as felonies in the case because they were allegedly committed in the service of another crime. In this case, promoting Trump's candidacy by unlawful means. The indictment stems from Bragg's probe of hush money payments made just before the 2016 election to cover up an alleged decade-old affair. Trump denies the affair and any illegal acts. My guest is former prosecutor Joshua Kastenberg, a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School. So tell us about the Manhattan District Attorney's case against Trump. So it's it's 34 charges of of bare-bones information that doesn't give the general public a full outline of who the hush money went to and what the defined purpose was. But you you can drill down and understand that the hush money was paid as an expense other than what it was stated and reported for matters other than what it was stated for, and it was done to affect the election. And under New York law, that makes it a felony. What did you think about the way Alvin Bragg tried to address, I think, his critics who'd been saying that this was, you know, much ado about nothing? He said that this is a lie time and time again and then a cover-up. Right. I mean, I think he made the case as to why he brought these charges and that these charges were brought not as a personal vendetta, but rather because there was evidence of a crime. What he didn't say and he perhaps was wise not to add, is that, you know, for the, the six years that have preceded the four years of the presidency, the election before the, the presidency, there was an inkling that Trump didn't do things by the book, by the rules. And you know, there was sort of the thumb in the eye sort of mentality that, that would go on. And that this isn't a case of the FBI or New York investigators targeting an individual who's unknown to the public, but rather investigating the finances of someone who has kind of fallen under scrutiny before. So do you think that he hasn't then answered his critics enough when he said that, you know, we investigated and then I bring cases when they're ready to be brought? No, I think he did exactly what he needed to do, because if he said what I said or made that suggestion, 
he would go a step too far and violate prosecutorial ethics. So he made the case, and I didn't make this clear enough, he made the case as far as he would be permitted to under prosecutorial ethics without crossing any lines. But that's the best he could do. So in that regard, I think he did a very effective press conference. And also, what about his trying to talk about New York, the importance of business records, and how this is just another one of hundreds of cases that we've brought like this. This is white-collar crime. Yeah. Look, he has the ability to say that this is not the first or the hundredth or the thousandth white-collar crime that New York criminal courts will try over the course of the next year or have tried in the prior year or two. That's absolutely right. This case is unique because of the defendant who's going to be on trial for it, but not because of the charges. Explain what happens next. Well, what happens next is there'll be a process known as a discovery process, and that's a constitutional process under both the U.S. and the New York Constitution that require the prosecution to provide all evidence in their possession that they intend to use at the trial and also all known exculpatory evidence that they may have obtained. So it's not enough to just give to the defense, hey, here are witnesses and Here's documentary evidence that we're going to bring to trial. The prosecutor also has an obligation through that process to give evidence that would tend to negate the guilt or prove the innocence, if you want to put it another way, of Mr. Trump or any other defendant. That process takes a while. And then there'll be all sorts of pretrial hearings, including motions raised by the defense to dismiss the charges, probably change venue. That'll probably be one. And also, you may see a motion for a gag order or some other type of speech restriction raised in the future as well. If there's another truth social type, you know, picture with the former president, the baseball bat and, and the like. These allegations have been out there for a long time and we've heard most of them. Do you think that the defense has to do really any kind of investigative work beyond what they already know? Oh, probably so. Mr. Trump has hardworking defense counsel, and they're not going to just rely on the information and data that's given to them that by Mr. Bragg. They're, they're going to conduct their own investigations, and they'll probably want to investigate matters that their own client tells them, you know, matters that, you know, would tend to undermine the integrity of the witnesses called by the prosecution. So they will investigate. How long it takes, I can't speculate. Do you think that they'll be able to get it dismissed as a a novel kind of legal argument? No, I don't think so. I mean, these laws have been on the books for a long time. I think the defense is most likely avenue to to make a hard case for the dismissal is a statute of limitations case, as well as, you know, the prosecution not having evidence of Mr. Trump's specific intent to commit a fraud, but rather him just signing hundreds of documents on any given day and not always knowing what he was signing. And what about a change of venue? It's likely if they can show that there aren't jurors who are fair and impartial. Now, the the law doesn't require adults serving on a jury to be an empty vessel. It doesn't require someone to have been in sort of a sleep coma, and now they're awake, and they're like, oh, I didn't you know, read about this. But it does require people to be fair and impartial and come in with an open mind with no preconceived notions and not have a bias against Mr. Trump. And that's the important point. You know, I'm convinced that in the United States' largest city, there are enough 
citizens out there that you could get a jury. But if the process takes too long or if it looks improbable, they'll change venue if the defense raises the motion. We've been speculating and speculating about what what this will be. It's, It's partly what I expected. I expected these charges, but I also expected a broader charge of conspiracy or criminal enterprise or something broad like that, an all-encompassing charge, and that wasn't in there, and so that caught me by surprise. On the other hand, if Mr. Bragg brought that charge, he would be accused of overreach. And so I think, you know, there's an old rule in charging cases that prosecutors have, and that's prosecute what's serious and what you know you can prove, what you believe in your heart you can prove. And so I'm I think that's what we're looking at right now. So, And do you think that looking at the indictment and all the months of work, that the prosecutors basically have their case set out? Oh, they do. I mean, when they ask for it, when they ask for an early trial date, I think they ask for an early trial date not to call a bluff or make a bluff on the court, but because they believe they're ready to go. What do you think about the strength of the charges? Well, you know, first of all, we don't know what the evidence is that's going to be backing these charges. The charges are simply ink on a sheet that the uh, the prosecutor was able to show to a, a grand jury and, and obtain an indictment by probable cause for, for that. So we'll get more clarity to the strength of the prosecution's case um, in the days and weeks ahead through a process known as discovery. And that's when the prosecutor has to name witnesses and provide evidence over to Mr. Trump's defense counsel. Having said that, you know, these charges, business fraud type charges, are going to be characterized in a lot of different ways. But at their core, whenever someone is charged with a crime of fraud, they're really essentially, just like tax fraud, they're charged with a crime of not paying into the system what the system demands of them. In this case, you think about, you know, money that New York, the state of New York collects. This is money that goes to police salaries, teacher salaries, school improvements, road improvements, keeping the subways running, things like that. You know, you're going to hear, look, it's a political uh, crime. They're not serious charges. Well, if you talk to a police officer who hasn't gotten a raise or a teacher who's looking at retirement, it all adds up. This case was termed a zombie case by a former prosecutor in the office because it died and kept getting revived over the years. Does that make a difference in the long run? It matters that it takes that long to to bring a case to trial, but I think we can read a lot of different angles into that. And One angle I'd suggest is the Trump's attorneys, they're saying, well, look, even the DOJ didn't bring this forward, and as are the former president's backers in Congress. But Let's keep in mind that Mr. Trump dismissed a very well-regarded United States attorney from the Southern District of New York, you know, Mr. Preet Bharara. He put his own people in there. And so we don't know what happened in the U.S. attorney's office, whether they looked at the charges and said they're good, but we're not going to go forward, or they looked at potential charges and said they're terrible, we're not going to go forward. Then we get to um, Cy Vance, his tenure as D.A., these may not be the identical charges that Vance's team was looking at. We, we don't know that either. But it is problematic because it makes for quite a bit of political fodder, both in Congress and, uh, and on the street. Well, thanks so much, Joshua. And that's Professor Joshua Kastenberg of the University of New Mexico Law School. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It was the most expensive race for a state Supreme Court seat in U.S. history. $39 million spent on advertising. And it swung Wisconsin's highest court toward liberals for the first time in 15 years. Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Janet Protosewitz, a liberal, defeated former Justice Dan Kelly, a conservative, by more than 10 points. Speaking to supporters after the election, Protosewitz said the state was ready for a change in its highest court. Our state is taking a step forward to a better and brighter future where our rights and freedoms will be protected. In his concession speech, Kelly was less than gracious and accused his opponent of running a dirty campaign. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. Joining me is Bloomberg National Politics reporter Ryan Teague Beckwith. Ryan, tell us about all this money spent on advertising. The good news for folks uh, in Wisconsin is that these seats there are for 10 years, so that money will keep for a while. Though I imagine that there'll be some more competitive uh, Supreme Court races coming up in the coming years. Most of this money was spent on behalf of Janet Protasewicz, who's a Milwaukee-area judge who was backed by Democrats. She was able to use her money more effectively, too, because it came directly from Democrats. So because she's spending the money herself, then she gets a better rate from the broadcasters under the rules. She spent not only more money than the Republican-backed candidate, Dan Kelly, but she got more bang for her buck. So she was running a lot of ads. And she was spending most of those ad time talking about abortion. Whereas Dan Kelly, most of the money was being spent for him by outside groups. What was the focus of the campaigning? Was it one particular issue? You know, state Supreme Court races are kind of weird because the candidates usually don't want to talk for sort of judicial ethics reasons. They don't want to get too much into what they think about the issue. This one really broke the mold on that. There is an upcoming case involving an 1849 law that's essentially banned abortion in Wisconsin since Roe versus Wade was overturned. And that case is clearly going to be decided by the winner of this race. There was a 4-3 conservative majority on the court. Uh, one of those conservatives was being vacated, and uh, the, the replacement would determine which side had the majority. Uh, Janet Protasewicz was running basically by going out there with a wink and a nod and saying, I really support women's rights to an abortion. So she was really clearly signaling that she would overturn the law uh, and uh, restore abortion rights in Wisconsin. Uh, Dan Kelly um, has done some work for anti-abortion groups in the past. He was more circumspect, saying he wasn't going to say how he would rule, and that uh, her claims that he would uphold the ban uh, were uh, inaccurate, uh, and uh, that she was violating judicial ethics by even tipping her hand as much as she was. 
Um, so abortion was clearly, clearly the driver of these rates. Were Democrats so focused on this as well because they have no chance of regaining control of the state legislature in the near future? Yes, gerrymandering is the other issue that this really would decide, although I don't think it really motivates voters and it wasn't really a focus of the ads. Curtis was very clear in saying that she thinks that their current maps in the state are, as she called them, rigged. Political scientists I've talked to have a number of different ways of measuring how gerrymandered maps are. Basically, they all come back saying that these are gerrymandered, and they've been that way since 2011. And there's not really any way to fix that under the current law and under the current court. Uh, so Protosawitz indicated that she would revisit that issue and that those maps may be overturned, which would give Democrats a fighting chance at winning back the legislature and winning a few more in the congressional delegation, which is also gerrymandered. So, as we know, Wisconsin plays a part repeatedly in presidential elections. So explain what happened in 2020 when it came within a single state Supreme Court vote of switching the state's electoral college. This was another issue that was kind of low key, but was present in the race because Dan Kelly had done some work for the state Republican Party in that capacity. He advised them on a fake elector scheme during Trump's attempts to overturn his loss in Wisconsin in 2020. And he was cited by the January 6th committee in its report as one of the people who had worked on that. He tried to sort of downplay that and say, you know, I was just asked my opinion on things and gave some legal advice. And it was a one-time conversation. But that raised a lot of questions. And there was some third-party groups that ran ads attacking him on that issue and saying, we don't want someone on the Supreme Court who might back one of these efforts in the future. And we have seen in other races where that's become an issue that people really don't like election denial and election deniers pretty much lost in most of the statewide races that they were on the ballot for last November. In Wisconsin, this was particularly uh, germane because there was a 4-3 decision with one of the uh, conservative justices joining with the three liberals to throw out the attempt by Donald Trump to challenge his loss and say, we're not going to hear it. We're not going to we're not going to go there. So there was some concern there that that they were one vote away, as it, as it were, from from hearing that. And, and who knows what might have happened from there. His concession speech was not what you would call graceful. He said, I wish that in circumstances like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent, but I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. Were there hard feelings between the two of them? I mean, aside from even saying I don't have a worthy opponent, he said to which and not to whom. <laughs> you know, lawyers <laughs> are known for those little ticks there, but like he didn't even call her a person, basically, in what passed for a concession, I guess. I mean, that was really, really classless and uh, not gracious at all. Now, he was very upset because he did not like the ads that were run against him. In their one debate that they had in late March, he really went after her for her ads and said that, you don't know what I'm thinking. You're slandering me with these ads uh, about abortion and, you know, seemed to really uh, be bothered by that. The ads did not strike me as someone who watches a lot of political ads as being particularly beyond the pale. I know uh, judges, and he was a past justice on the state Supreme Court who had been appointed 
uh, may not be used to that rough and tumble, but he also worked for the state Republican Party. So it was a little mystifying to me that he was quite this bothered by his loss. Now, it was an 11-point loss, and it was the second time that he lost an election for the state Supreme Court in the last few years, so maybe he was just taking it more personally. There's some people who are uh, worried that this signals that there may be more to come here. The legislature, the Republicans just won a supermajority on the legislature and a special election that was also on the ballot. And that gives them the ability to impeach statewide officials. And there had already been some people in the state Republican Party throwing around the idea of impeaching with if she was elected. That's several steps between now and that possibility, which I think is still fairly remote because you kind of got to get everybody on board with that idea. But if it looks like she's going to throw out the gerrymandering and that could affect the livelihood of all of the members of the legislature, there may be a temptation to, you know, take the fight and continue it. So I, I think we'll see where that goes. It's definitely a very closely fought state. It's very evenly tied between the two parties. And Republicans have been able to use that gerrymandering to and their control of the Supreme Court uh, in the state to really kind of hold power for a long time. Uh, Democrats with this win look to be breaking that lock. And uh, so I, I expect that their counter reaction to that will be uh, pretty fierce. So we'll see this state be a real locus of activity, I think, in 2024. Do they have grounds that they are going to use to impeach her on already, or are they going to come up with grounds? I think if you're saying, let's impeach someone who hasn't even been (laughs) in office yet, I I think you're kind of tipping your hand that you don't exactly have grounds. But they probably could come up with something like, well, you know, because she said these maps were rigged, and now she is refusing to recuse herself from you know, a case on it, then she should be impeached. They also were attacking her for accepting money from the state Democratic Party, although that's a pretty routine thing, you know, saying that she should recuse herself from any cases involving the state Democratic Party. So imagine that there will be a lot of different arguments that they could make if they decide that's something that they want to do. And again, if if it really looks like, uh, you know, they could lose control of the legislature by new maps being drawn up, then that, that may be something that moves more closer to possibility. But I, I would still say we're, we're, we're a ways off from that. And she won by a wide margin, so it didn't even end up being that close of a race. Yeah, she won by 11%. This was a 11. blowout. Um, this was, turnout was up, um, and turnout was, and, and the uh, youth turnout was incredibly high. Uh, the area around the University of um, Madison, Wisconsin, turnout was extremely high there. And they were voting in Dane County there by like 80 percent for Protosawitz, even as Protosawitz was holding down the Republican margin in some of the suburbs that they traditionally win. So this has shown, I think, again, as with uh, Governor Tony Evers win in November, that uh, Democrats have figured out how to win Wisconsin right now. And it's largely using abortion. It's an issue that's helping them win the suburbs and it's helping them juice youth to- turnout. And it's helping them win women voters and by enough of a margin to offset what otherwise, like I said, is a really closely tied state. Do you think that Democrats are going to be looking at this race and the abortion strategy used and perhaps using it in national races or in other races? 
I mean, I definitely think that uh, we're going to see that be an issue nationally in 2024. President Biden does not like talking about social issues because he thinks that they rile people up on the other side as much as they rile up your side. And so he looks for ways to de-escalate them whenever possible and change the subject to kitchen table stuff. Abortion is the one exception there. And that's largely because it clearly right now riles up more people on the side of supporting abortion rights than it does rile up people who are opposed to abortion. Like there is a turnout advantage here. If you can make a race about abortion and you can show that that there will be an actual consequence if you vote on this, uh, then you're going to get that higher turnout and, and you're going to win those voters. So I think Democrats are definitely going to be looking to making more races about that. And I think that uh, Biden will definitely be talking about it a lot in his ads and his campaign stops, even though it's not a natural issue for him, um, because this is just yet another example of that being a very effective message for Democrats and one that the Republicans really did not have a good counter for. The state Supreme Court, are a lot of their decisions so close No, it's really just on that handful of issues where you really get that partisan divide, and it matters. I think there's a lot of issues that state Supreme Courts consider about this law or that law, and, you know, how should we determine legislative intent of this or that? And those can break in all kinds of ways. Um, They're really not the partisan sort of hotbed that I think people see, like the Supreme Court. But when it's crunch time, um, you know, on a handful of issues, there, there are divisions there. Abortion was clearly one, and gerrymandering is clearly another. And, you know, I imagine it's been 15 years since Democrats had a majority in the state Supreme Court. So I imagine there's a lot of issues that they hadn't mm-hmm. even bothered with because they didn't think they would win. So we may see, you know, some Democratic allied groups going to the state Supreme Court with arguments about union organizing or uh, social issues and trying to see if they can win uh, a case there that might you know, help them out or help them achieve some policy goal. So, you know, we'll definitely be a sea change there in the state uh, in terms of who has the power. Thanks so much, Ryan. That's Bloomberg National Politics reporter Ryan Teague Beckwith. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.